You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this very first episode of the Energy Insiders podcast for 2023. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm still the editor and publisher of Renew Economy and the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me, as he has done for the last four years, I'm David Leach from ITK. David, I trust you've had a excellent break. Uh, I've had a, a break, Giles, as I'm sure listeners uh, have, and looking forward to what the new year brings us in terms of all things electricity, decarbonisation and uh, exciting minerals. Well, exactly, yes. Well, I guess the overall view for the year is we better get our skates on if we're going to meet all those ambitious targets that we've talked about for 2030 and 2035. But um, to kick off the new year, we're going to start with an interview that you recorded just before Christmas. Um, It's about one of the big questions about the EV industry. We're starting to see a big uptake, pick up in EV demand in Australia, Uh, 5.8% of new car sales in the month of December which shows signs of latent demand and increasing supply. David, why don't you introduce your interview um, with Rod Hooper? Yes, uh, so we were pleased to interview uh, Rod Hooper, who has previously been on the podcast. Rod is one of a two-man team at RK Equity, uh, which is a specialist firm in the lithium industry. And uh, Rodney uh, knows a lot uh, about lithium. And here's what he had to say about the outlook for lithium and what Australia needs to do to make the most of our lithium resources. Rodney Hooper from RK Equity. Hi, good to be here again. Yes, indeed. It is. Um, last time when we talked, uh, some of our listeners might remember the, the um, lithium. Uh, we, You and I were confident that lithium was going to... Uh, be in for an exciting time price-wise and so it's turned out and so I thought it was opportune um, with a heavy debate amongst the investment banks about the outlook to have another look at where I think Australia can perhaps have its um, one of its greatest opportunities in the decarbonisation space. Um, Let me start by reminding our listeners Rodney if we could about the lithium supply and just to, to run over that there are lithium carbonate and uh, lithium hydroxide and two means of extracting it brine and spodumene and perhaps you could just uh, talk a little bit about the relative percentages and the size of the market at the moment and and and, and which one's the most economic so um yeah so uh, obviously they're, they're new technologies trying to make their way into the world but um as it stands, um, you know, you've got Brian and, and, and Hard Rock as the two methods. Uh, Hard Rock taking over as uh, pretty dominant uh, from this year onwards. Um, Brian will catch up, but it looks like Hard Rock is going to step up into a bigger role. We'll see how new technologies go. So on balance, that's slightly bigger. Um, and uh, in terms of costing, it depends on how you, how you produce, if you're an integrated or a non-integrated producer. But brine is, is very good on a costing side for um, conventional brine with the likes of SQM, probably the lowest cost producer, although they now have you know, those royalty payments effectively into you know into the government so that's linked to price so they've had uh, a lot of uh, payments i think in fact lithium has now eclipsed copper in chile is the biggest you know payer of of um effectively royalties to government so that's quite something given how big the copper industry is indeed it is and i think escondida is one of the biggest uh, copper producers in the world one of bhp's operations uh, Ronnie, let's. Um, uh, I, I appreciate us kind of rushed in at the top end there. Um, just talk to me about what the total uh, lithium 
carbonate and lithium hydroxide, the total supply in millions of tonnes is going to be this year. I think we're talking a number a bit less, half a million tonnes or a bit less? No, I, I have I have bigger than that. So again, you know, one needs to qualify how one looks at it, but I have it around just under 750,000 um, uh, tonnes for the year um, and split... Um, you know, uh, roughly 438 uh, hard rock and about 312, you know, brine. Um, so uh, that's that's on the supply side. But again, it, and on the demand side, I have a bit over 800,000 tons of demand LCE this year. So there's a shortfall in aggregate. And then when you pass that down to battery grade qualification and needs, for um, the uh, lithium-ion battery market, obviously dominated by EVs, but ESS, energy storage, consumer electronics, and so on, two, three wheelers and buses, that is bigger than that number. And that's why you've seen an extremely tight market that's short. You've had to effectively draw down on inventories in the system, and you've seen the prices, you know, go gangbusters. So Going forward... Um, just hang, just just hang on a second there. Let's just go one step at a time. Uh, um, the price. So I think the price over the past eighteen months has brought was flat for about five years, from two thousand sixteen to roughly the beginning of twenty twenty one, and and since then it's broadly gone up about six times. Is that a reasonable estimate? Uh, again, it depends on, on how you look at it because there's contract and spot, but I mean, you know, China spot's probably gone up more than that. I think at the low, you were probably getting down to, I think at the very low, possibly as low as $8,000 a ton. And, you know, now we, we're not, we've touched nearly 80. So, um, 10 probably from the very bottom to the very high, but yeah, it's, it's gone up. It's gone up a multiple, I guess, because you just, there is no material around. And of course, with the current talk about gas price, um, uh, uh, the, the government regulating the gas price in Australia, it makes me laugh that uh, at the same time we want to let the lithium price run, but I don't want to get into politics or anything other than lithium today. Uh, and um, just on the demand side, of course, it, it, this changes every year. But if I just look at the battery demand for lithium in 2022, uh, would it be like 70% cars and 30% all other battery applications in, in, in your head? Or how would you think of it? Um, yeah, I would need to, I'd need to have a, a specific look, but it is dominated. Um, yeah, I'd say that's, that's probably not far off. So that's a fair number. Um, I think people need to realize that as much as EVs takes the limelight, energy storage is becoming, it's, a, it's growing faster. Um, given how much renewable energy is coming on uh, each year. And I think in time, that's going to be probably a bigger total addressable market. Um, it will take time to to get there, but once you've electrified the vehicle fleet, you've still got a long way to go on 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 uh, on power and, and backup and so on and five G towers and so on. But yeah, that's roughly the split for this year. Uh, but and now, if I look, so we, we're talking, let's say three quarters of a million tons, and then I guess we have two periods of demand really the period between 2022 and say 2020-25 and then between 2025 and 2030 in some ways it's easy to look out to 2030 what do you expect that three quarters of a million tons to turn into by 2030 and what would you say the um, analyst range uh, across the analysts that you look at is out there yeah, well, that's uh, that's a good, an interesting one. For me, my number is about 3.4 million tons will be required in 2030. Um, there are some analysts who are higher. There are quite a few analysts that are lower. Um, because, again, the, the, the question, I guess, is, you know, demand is one thing, whether supply can meet it and, you know, where, where, where you sort of meet in the middle. But uh, the range, I guess, 
guess is between about two and a half and and maybe four. So I'm I'm slightly above the mid range. I think EV adoption has come quicker than we thought. Certainly in China, and now you look at the US and elsewhere pushing hard, and government legislation. I mean, most most countries are now looking at 2030 to 2035 as um, the end date for the sale of, of new internal combustion engine vehicles, a ban. But as you and I know, why, who in their right mind would buy an internal combustion engine vehicle with a few years to go before a ban when the cost of, of running a, a second-hand internal combustion engine is a lot more expensive than, than maintaining an electric vehicle? So uh, I think the transition is and has happened quicker than expected, and I don't see that. I don't see that changing because the other thing is, if you look at the OEMs, they the cost of 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 putting on a new platform for a new model is very expensive, and they typically like to run a model platform for at least five to seven years. But a lot of them have already stated, you know, I think from mid decade or just after that, they just won't be putting out new internal combustion engine models. So I, I think history so far has shown the conversion to EVs to be quicker than the projection. And I think given the commitments and the government bans and consumer demand and all of those things, we're likely to see it happen quicker. And then, as I say, energy storage is something that's been overlooked, but it's now that is going very strongly. And uh, given, you know, unstable grids and so on, backup batteries are probably going to become, you know, standard. Indeed. Uh, well, I don't know about standard, but certainly much more widespread. Um, uh, so if we talked about 3 million tonnes in 2030, and again, this is the sort of nerdy analyst in me, um, what do you think uh, as a roughly energy, stationary energy storage, so utility and home batteries, uh, of, of that three million tons, what what percentage share do, in in your mind do you think it could be? So in my mind, on the uh, it, it's it's roughly just under a quarter. Right, that's very clear. And so this is something, as you say, with all the growth in EV demand, that's complete. There are other accelerators uh, in there. Now. Uh, uh, I guess that the next question is, that's, that's what we, you think will be able to be produced. And um, do we need, uh, to come at this in a roundabout way, new production methods to do it? So I think every industry goes through a learning rate. That is that the unit cost reduces as the total installed capacity uh, doubles. Uh, and, and so we're going to get better at extracting lithium in the same way that we've got better at everything else. And can you tell me about what's going on in the lithium mining uh, uh, extraction and, and refining uh, world in terms of ch the way it's changing? So, um, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one because you've got, you know, Kemerton and Quinana, uh and they've taken longer than expected to come up on stream on downstream, and that is on conventional resources on a on the probably the best known hard rock deposit in the world, which is green bushes. So, you know, before we even get to new technologies, existing well known, well trodden conventional flow sheets have had their challenges in in getting up to speed. And you've got Chris Ellison and Co. wanting to do more, but ultimately, you know, Albemarle keeps putting additional refining capacity in China um, because that seems to be where the lowest cost and know-how is. The question, of course, is geopolitics, cost, all sorts of things like that. When do you do carbon, you know, carbon credits or carbon charges and so on? So, you know, in terms of fundamentally improving lithium you know extraction let's just understand the current existing model is fine it's a question of permitting to a large extent and it's a question of where you put the conversion capacity in now in western australia they're good about permitting and like all good things given where the prices run to there's an endless stream of new 
listings and, and unlisted companies running around looking for hard rock and brown resources, and particularly hard rock in Oz and Canada, but you've also got Africa, Brazil, and so on. So if, you, if we lived in a world where we didn't mind where our lithium came from, China can, can permit and build a new uh, chemical conversion plant in, in China in, in a year. And they could, you know, build that out. I don't know what you do necessarily with all of the tailings and so on, but, you know, they could flesh it out and go and go a long way. There's a limit to the sodium sulfate and whatever usage that you can do, you know, washing powders and so on. So there's, you, you do have that to deal with. But conventionally, we could go a long way to achieving what needs to be achieved. What is always more appealing to... OEMs and consumers and so on are these zero carbon options of DLE and uh, you know and clay. Let, let, let's let's go through the um, uh, acronyms. You and I both come from investment banking, where the first sign that you're an analyst is that you use a lot of acronyms that no one else understands. Uh, DLE is direct lithium extraction. Uh, just uh, where are we? Um, what what is that, and how, how and how promising so is it? In itself, has to split down because you've got membrane, you've got uh, iron exchange, you've got different versions of 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 direct lithium extraction. But um, you know, the one we probably cover most closely is is iron exchange, which is effectively absorbent to resin that they put in a chamber and that. Uh, attracts the lithium ions as you flow, you know, brine through it, lower grade brine through it. So, you know, the the technology certainly works at lab scale um, and is now being ramped up to go to pilot plants at various different places around the world, you know, to see whether it can do it at scale. There is some commercially operated uh, uh, iron exchange in China, but it's still arguable whether that's battery grade or non-battery grade and, and what it produces. You know, everyone always quotes Lavin, but Lavin uses conventional ponds and then sort of almost purifies to a higher level the, um, you know, the, uh, the already concentrated brine from the ponds in its usage. So, Theoretically, these things work. You know, the debate is, you know, can you scale out? Can you pump? Can you pump out and then pump back in, you know, the, the brine back into the reservoirs or wherever it comes from? And is the recovery rate going to be high enough that it's commercial? Because a lot of the technologies and the models are based on you know very high recovery rates and the, you know the question is can you do that when you do it at scale so and and so so rodney sorry um uh the the reason why you would you would go to direct lithium extraction dle over these two methods of uh hard rock or brine and um is because it, it's an environmentally friendlier or because it's you get better quality lithium or because it's lower cost? So it's definitely not going to be lower cost, in my opinion. If anything, it's going to be more expensive. But that in the world that we live in and where lithium prices are, that's okay because in theory, you're, you're going to pump out. Because again, it's not drinkable water, right? It's brine. So, but it can have an impact on... Um, it can have an impact on, uh, you know, how much, uh, you know, land area you use versus conventional ponds which you pump out. Can you affect groundwater and so on? There is a debate about how much fresh water you have to use in order to flush and wash out the resin when it's, you know, when you need to do the cleaning to extract the lithium and then put the resin back in. Um, but theoretically, it is a lot lower a land footprint. Um, it has no ecological impact on it. And in theory, you know, depending on, on, on which method, it can be, you know, effectively net zero carbon emissions to do it. So it is appealing from 
a sustainability perspective if it, that proves to be the case. Uh, and therefore, even if it is more expensive, I guess in theory, if you do introduce carbon tax or some kind of a carbon emissions penalty for the extraction of raw material or just on the net amount that's in a battery, then that should to some extent mitigate the higher cost. All right, all right. I don't want to go down. Uh, all these things interest me, and I note that the big consultants in Europe, Transport and Environment, just released a study overnight talking about how lithium batteries can be even more environmentally friendly. But I don't want to go there too much. Next thing I want to talk about, I think, is, uh, uh, well, Australia. Um, I could ask this question a lot of ways, but let me ask it this way. How important is Australia's going to be to the future of the lithium industry, do you think? So in my opinion, very important because um, uh, it's not to say that the resources and so on are better than, than elsewhere, it, depending on, on what it is. I think, you know, that's, that's up for debate, but... Uh, Australia is very good at permitting projects um, and and getting them going. You know, Pilbara was from drill bit to production was was four years, which is exceptional. Um, and you know, you may have seen some you know news releases recently that Canada says that you know they're going to look not just to support but also improve the permitting process. So. I think given Western Australia's ability to have a quick turnaround uh, from initial discovery to production is going to be of great benefit. Um, I guess it's proximity, as long as it doesn't have, uh, you know, massive downstream capacity that can match the amount that it produces, it's going to be an appealing partner for other, you know, political jurisdictions because Australia is a good partner and friendly partner to have like Canada. So I do think from a lithium perspective, there still are, there will be, I said this oh, four years ago, I think, you know, you can't find the green bushes around every corner, but if you can find 40, 50 million ton deposits, depending on, on what they like, and you look at something like core, which is Dense media separation only. It's a very simple flow sheet and crushing. You can get going with a lot smaller resource. I think Australia can deliver a lot into that, into the into the demand and and fill up, you know, much needed supply. So um, I think from a raw materials feedstock perspective, Australia has a key role to play. Whether it can become a downstream chemical converter, you know, you've got that. Calix thing, that midstream product that, that Pilbara is talking about. But, you know, you look at Kemerton, you look at Quinano, would they build those again? I don't know. They've had massive cost overruns. Getting into to commercial production has proved a much bigger challenge. You've got people disputing where the waste's going to go. So downstream from, from raw material, from, from spodumin concentrate, I'm... I'm uh, you know, it's there's costs. There's um... let's let's just pause on that, and because I think that myself, there's a massive debate in every country around the world now about manufacturing and not wanting to have manufacturing in China, frankly, which I want to come back to, or not all your manufacturing. In China. I want to come back to that and the United States as well, but I just want to sp spend a little bit time on Australia's manufacturing. And you have pointed out, and I, I don't. I think it's normal. Like when I looked at um, Alchem, or, or, or as they used to be, Oracobra. One of the reasons I liked owning it was because it was so hard to get it going, <laughs> and I thought everyone else would have the same trouble. Uh, but won't won't the people get better at building the downstream uh, processing capacity, the lithium hydroxide uh, processes in in, in Australia? Um, you know, won't we eventually end up with the expertise that China seems to have right now? Well, think of it right now. So Greenbush's Albemarle has the team in China that does the downstream processing. I'm pretty sure they use those skills at, at Kemerton on identical material. And yet 
look at the cost overruns and look at the delays. So it might be, but I'm saying in the end, in the cold light of day, if you exclude politics and everything else, the cost of labor, the cost of reagents, the cost of construction, all of those other things and the challenges. China is, you know, you, just in terms of timing, you, you can build much quicker there than you can anywhere else. So if, you, if you're determined to do it, yes, you can get better, I guess. But if you look at it in terms of costing, you can still build a lithium hydroxide conversion plant in China between five and eight thousand dollars a ton of installed capacity and it's 20 to thirty thousand at least everywhere else good I, th I think that's very clear to the rest of the world and it's one of the reasons why i'm a great believer in in comparative advantage and and but but that's me and i think this is a challenge so, first, so think about it how much iron ore does australia produce and how much steel does australia i have thought about that and made that exact point on many occasions uh, many, many of us analysts do, but not everyone accepts it. We all wanted. There's a huge lobby of people who've never manufactured anything, who, in my opinion, who are politicians and unions and everyone else who say let's have local manufacturing, <laughs> as as if it was that easy. Let me now talk about uh, the the global picture and particularly the United States because they've introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, which incentively, essentially, as I understand it, provides these very large incentives to mine the lithium and produce the batteries in the United States. First of all, am I factually correct about that? Yes. So there are incentives. There are direct. There were direct grants, and quite a, a few of our clients got those. And then there is. There is a tax credit system that's also people, it's less well known, but you actually get some decent tax credits on the back of, of whatever, you know, costs that you incur producing in America. And then there's a very generous uh, incentive on the battery and the pack manufacturer in, in the US. If you do both, I think it's $45 per kilowatt hour. So just if I can make one point here is, again, if I compare Australia to the States, America, Europe and elsewhere are going to put massive incentives in order for people to be commercially competitive and do it, you know, reshore it or onshore it in their countries. Australia has always, like they do with Arnold, and I had a I had a go at them on this is when the spodumen concentrate price was through the floor, they were still charging a royalty in Western Australia, even though the guys were losing money. So the question is, do you see it? Do you see mining and downstream as a revenue opportunity or is Australia prepared to put its hand in its pocket and do something simpler, similar to the RA and actually partially fund, give tax breaks, all sorts of things for people to do things in Australia, because that's what it's going to take. So I, I hear that, but let I just want to deal with the international side of things now and move away from Australia di directly. So um, let, let's talk about China and the United States. And if I take Tesla, which is for many intents and purposes, just about the EV industry globally this year, it won't be in the future. Um, they have factories in China, and I think most of their cells and batteries come from China, don't they, at the moment? Uh, so, well, Tesla, it does, uh, you know, Panasonic's in Nevada, so they do about 40 gigawatt hours, so they, they do quite a bit. Um, but they are, as far as LFP cells usage, they are importing, but for the rest, they have been uh, largely manufacturing, you know, well, again, let's just understand the Spodumen comes from Aussie, the chemical, the lithium comes from China, then the, the cathode comes from Japan, and then the cell is made in, in the US. That's it. That's global manufacturing. That's the world I, I like, to be frank, uh, but it's not the world we're going to be living in in the future, is it? Because they'll have to be getting their lithium from, they won't be able to get their um, uh, uh, lithium from China in the future. Well, again, I guess, you know, when, we, when the crunch time comes, we'll see how this all plays out. But it is the reason why Howard and I, and I despite others bashing Canada because Namaska had failed and North American lithium or what have you, is we think 
that Canada is similar to Australia in its resources of spodumen, and as long as America is happy to take Canadian spodumen, then I believe the model is you put things like um, uh, Piedmont's Tennessee uh, conversion plant, which is a which is a merchant converter. It's not going to have a mine attached, and they're going to get material sent from from uh, elsewhere in the world and process it in the U.S. It seems to be that Americans have an aversion to mining, but they are okay, certain states certainly are okay with doing the downstream processing. So if you have brownfield sites and you can do tailings management and all those good things, then I think that is a model that will be looked at. And Tesla's looking at building its own lithium hydroxide a plant and uh, and receiving material from elsewhere in the world, quite possibly Lion Town, for all I know, uh, in time. So, uh, in your opinion, and these opinions are, are bound to change over time, but as uh, you know, when Europe's introducing its cross-border tax, I don't know if that'll have any impact on lithium per se, but Europe has its own ambitions, even about manufacturing even if they're not as uh, in place or aggressive as the United States. I guess my question is, what's going to happen to the China lithium industry, in your opinion? Will it keep growing uh, or, uh, or will it keep up with share or, 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 or how do you think about it? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. So they, they, they have their own domestic market, but what I think people don't understand, and I read an article the other day and I'm looking very much forward to seeing how that plays out, is... Um, Someone was uh, forecasting that Europe will be a net importer of cars, as in EVs, by 2025, I think, to the tune of 800,000. So how is Europe going to enjoy having its own auto industry shrinking and then importing vehicles from China? Uh, you've already got BMW and others that manufacture in China and then ship it out. So. Will China's industry shrink? I don't think so, because largely elsewhere in the world, including where I live on my end of, of the world and in Africa and, you know, across most of the continent, they're happy to, they'll take Chinese EVs. So I think the reality is China is going to dominate the export market. I think Europe and the U.S. will look to defend and tariff and protect and do whatever they can on their own auto industries because they are such big employers, even though EVs use a lot less labor on a, on a total basis. But I think elsewhere in the world, South America, Africa, and what have you, you're going to see Chinese EVs like you do cars, you know, proliferate. So that's going to prop up their industry to an extent. And then the question is, you know, will China... Will China's lithium industry, I know lipidolite is not great and that's dirty and all those good things, but will there be a fair portion of the lithium market that switches to renewables, to solar, to what have you, and tries to meet international standards so that its material is accepted globally? That is, that is right. Uh, and, and I think uh, we all hope that that is the case. And, and personally, that we, can, we could continue to partner with China if there wasn't so much political tension, but uh, leaving that to a side again. And, and I, you know, um, I suppose I'll waste uh, or to spend a minute or two. I see South Korea as making great strides, but how, do you have any uh, quick thoughts about Japan and what they're doing? Are, are they left it to, where are they going to get their lithium from? Yeah, well, that's the problem. So Japan and South Korea, if you asked me, and I've said this many times, I think the South Korean battery manufacturers are the most exposed to raw material shortages. Um, they have been welcomed with open arms into the U.S., as you know, with tie-ups, you know, with GM, etc., Ford. So, um, you know, they run their own systems and they, they run their own uh, procurement strategies and M&A and so on. I think they've been left a little behind. You know, China's been aggressive. They've worked out that Canada and elsewhere, the doors are closed. So they are all over Africa and they are all over South America particularly Argentina. So, and I'm sure they'll, you know, if there's, there's any openings elsewhere, they'll do it. Um, whereas South Korea has not done the deals. 
They've signed offtake agreements, and I keep saying, you know, offtake agreements without assistance in permitting or without assistance in funding and meaningful, you know, equity investments, things don't get built. So from a technology perspective, I think they are fine, and I think they've got good partnerships with good things. But even if you go with a fine-tooth comb through GM's, you know, procurement strategy, there are a lot of those projects that I think are quite simply BS. They won't get built or they're going to be very delayed. So their ambitions are going to be thwarted in time. So I, I think, you know, Panasonic was early to the game and it still only produces what it produces now. So, and Japan has been a anti-EV from the start. Yeah, Japan's hopeless. They've really, in my opinion, they've, uh, that they, they're in, Toyota's in danger of significantly losing its, uh, it's rating, you know. Yeah, I mean, they have the, I mean, I guess there's loyalty in the domestic market, but even to that extent, but I think in the international market, you know, they were in denial and denial and said no one wants and whatever, because they understood this is a China versus them debate and they couldn't really compete. And, but, you know, I guess you, you leave your head in the sand for long enough and, and now you have a problem and EVs are undeniable. So I know the RAV uh, hybrid sells quite well or what have you, but as the world shifts to probably full battery electric vehicles, they are at risk. So from a battery perspective, from a cathode perspective and everything else, Japan's become a rounding error, to be honest, and it'll continue. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's get away from the EVs and even back from the stationary batteries. And let's just talk about, we've talked about, um, so your opinion is we can go from three quarters of a million tonnes uh, this year to something like three three million tons by 2030. That's an achievable growth in supply, in no. your opinion. No, 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 no. You asked me demand. I've given you demand. Oh. Already this year, demand I have at over 800,000 versus supply at 750. And then when you do the adjustments for battery grade, it gets worse. So we've had a huge shortage this year, and that's why the prices have run. Um, to be fair, my models are harsh. If something is not permitted, not fully funded and not under construction, I don't include it in supply because I just cannot unless it's met those hurdles. So looking out, uh, and I know, you know, Joe, Larry's similar, you know, looking out to 2025 is almost cast in stone. There's very little new that can come on by then. Um, so we know where the problems are. Um, post 2025, there is still an opportunity if you get going now to put new projects. Let, let, let's go, hang on, just hold it on. Let's break this down because out to 2025, what do you think the new supply will be? What do you think production, actual production, will be in 2025 for for our listeners? So I do think that production will equal demand on an aggregate basis, but on a qualified battery grade qualified basis, there's going to be a shortage for the battery grade market. And this is why lithium is such a tricky thing to analyze and which is why I don't like the big bank research and their forecasts because they believe production is synonymous with it being qualified and into the battery chain. But it takes at least a year or two if it's new material. And a lot of new production is going to come from greenfield projects, it isn't all brownfield expansion from incumbents. So on an aggregated level, it looks like there isn't a big problem. But once you pass it down and break it down into battery qualified material, there is a shortage and it's meaningful. So again, you know, you, you... But, you, but, but you're looking for something like a, a doubling of actual supply of battery grade material between 2022 and the end of 2025, yes. something like that? Give or take, yes. And that comes from new projects and the ramping up of existing projects. Yes. And then to get from uh, what would then be about one and a quarter million tonnes, one and a half million tonnes, up to three million tonnes over the next five years, that doesn't seem, well, can we do no, that? No, well, that's where, that's where your big problem comes. But again, it is, it is theoretically solvable. But again, I, and I keep saying, I keep reading these reports on you know, how supply will balance out and so on. But the problem that you have is 
the only way to end up in oversupply or sufficient supply is if you have overinvestment in upstream and we're just not seeing it. So I see offtakes being signed, I see hands being shaken, I see all sorts of paperwork being swapped, but I don't see enough money going into the ground. That's the reality. So it is possible that you can have projects financed and my model changes because 2026 is whatever it is for, you know, three, the beginning would be, but the end would be four years away. So there is time for projects to be financed and built. But at the moment, that's not the case. And then you still have the problem of constructing it, then commissioning and ramping up to nameplate and then qualifying that material into the battery supply chain, which the difficulty of which cannot be underestimated. And the incumbents keep telling you how hard it is and the juniors keep telling you that it's not a problem for them. But it will be a problem. Yes, no, I, I, I think... I think that's absolutely been the uh, story, and we're coming to the end of our, our, our time. So, uh, I just, but I need to ask quickly about demand destruction. If supply, if prices are going to remain very high for lithium, uh, and I think for nickel and other stuff as well can be affected, uh, um, it's going to actually affect the demand. I mean, cars are going to stay expensive, and and we're not going to get the rate so of growth. I don't, I don't that, have that's normally staying high in perpetuity because you, you do have you know new production coming online, but the reality is very simple. You can avoid demand destruction and you can avoid, you know, I don't know if you saw Stellantis has put a plant on hold now, so, um, or put it on ice, so because of costs of EVs. But what you can do is redirect some of the hundreds of billions of dollars that OEMs are planning on spending on downstream when they haven't even secured the upstream is to you know is to redirect that money to upstream and invest in early exploration and early feasibility projects that you think are promising and get your material for cheaper and you can do that because there are lots of juniors you know, everyone says it's too expensive. I don't agree. I see good projects around the place. And I think if they make sufficiently early investments into the upstream, they could end up with, you know, with their lithium and other materials at far cheaper prices than where they are now. And they can make it, you know, a commercial, they can have a commercial business and make a profit. But when you skew everything to the cell and to the pack and to the EV platform and nothing to cathode and um, and chemical and uh, raw materials supply, well, you know, then, you know, I, I don't understand how you can have a 50 billion plan and you've got literally zero for upstream. Yep. You could, you, you sound like me talking about wind farms and, you know, it's why buy an operating one when you could be getting out there doing the permitting. But, uh, uh, let's not worry about that anymore. And I, I, it sounds like uh, people should be coming and talking to RK Equity about what they should be doing. They'd get very good advice. So I think the um, Ronnie, the, um, the the lithium price is in the order of sixty to eighty US thousand dollars a ton at the moment. Where do you think it'll be? Uh, and no one's going to hold you to this because no one knows better than me how stupid price forecasting is. But if you were guessing, where, where do you see that price uh, in, in two or three years' time? So I, I see it staying in sort of the 60 to 70 for the next three years, and then I see it tapering down uh, on, the, on, the, on the assumption of hope over experience, mind you, that, you know, finally, that that you know that production that new production will come online and you know my my model of massive undersupply is wrong because people will will see the challenge so 60 to 70 for the next three years and it's tapers down and then after 2030 i have a long-term forecast of about thirty thousand dollars a ton for hydroxide and about that correlates to about just over two thousand dollars a ton for spodumant concentrate and at those prices Still very well incentivized for people to go out and find new material because obviously it does not stop there as you as you electrify everything you know the demand you know keeps going benchmark had an insane number in 2050 or something like I don't, I don't even want to say the number it was so high so 
No, no, and, and we don't need to talk about 2050 in this case because we can talk about something much closer but and there's plenty for us to do I guess 20, to, before so 2025. is so flat to 20, 60 to 70 to 25, but as I say, beyond 2030, I think 30,000 for hydroxide, 2,000 for spodumin, which is, we do, I don't know where inflation is going to go and it can be tricky, but I think that's an incentive price to keep people going out there and doing it, it allows enough buffer for overruns, for cost overruns, for qualification timelines being blown out and, you know, for people to to still see a good, you know, 20% plus after tax RR to keep people going out there and, and finding the stuff. Rodney Hooper from RK Equity, it's been an absolute pleasure as I expected. Uh, I, I don't know if you own share, lithium shares, but I certainly do. And uh, I feel, as ever, reassured following this conversation. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and wishing you all the best for next year. Thanks, you too. Thanks for having me on. That was um, Rod Hooper from RK Equity. Um, I guess that's the big question, David. What can Australia do and will it actually take advantage of its mineral resources? Doesn't know how to do that. Doesn't know how to do value-added products. Um, I think there's a whole heap of reports that have come out in the last week from the likes of Bloomberg New Energy Finance and even the International Energy Agency talking about the sort of sheer scale of this sort of green energy in, um, revolution and not just talking about sort of how many panels and how many wind turbines you're putting in but just sort of you know the, the whole transition of green industry and whether it be lithium and added value and battery manufacturing and things like that um what say you well it's not a backyard industry anymore and in terms of doing things big and at scale uh, the first model you turn to is china uh, and what uh, Rod said in that interview was that if we want to do uh, downstream processing of uh, spodumene, that's the raw, the, the, the sort of ore you cut out to make lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate, then uh, we'll need to be as good as the Chinese if we, if we want to do that. And right now, in the couple of goes we've had at it so far, we're not as good. But that doesn't mean we should stop. It just means we need to keep working away uh, hard at building this new capacity and moving down our own learning curve. I do think, you know, uh, the secondary processing of, of lithium ore is, is a real thing that Australia actually can do and just represents a processing stage uh, that, that's, that's well within our technical capabilities, doesn't require us to have a great big domestic market or we can still export the lithium hydroxide and, 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 and the like. So uh, there are good opportunities in processing uh, minerals. Should we go any further, though? Should we actually start thinking about sort of battery ma um, manufacturing? I mean, there's been a couple of proposals. I think there's one in Victoria. There's Energy Renaissance in, um, in New South Wales around the old, uh, well, sorry, the existing um, Tamago um, aluminium refinery. Um, you know, if we're going to be doing projects of the scale of Sun Cable, which we'll get to very soon, you're probably going to have to start thinking about sort of manufacturing of solar panels and manufacturing of battery storage in Australia. And obviously, the sort of the devilish complexity of those has caused the fallout between Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks. Um, but shouldn't we be really ambitious in this sort of secondary, um, you know, manufacturing and capability? I, I think there's nothing wrong with dreaming big, uh, but uh, generally, business works mostly in small incremental steps until you build up enough confidence to take a big one. Um, there are two really classes of batteries that we're talking about. One is automotive batteries. I don't see any future for Australia in, in that area because uh, we don't make the cars. We're never likely to make the cars. Uh, we're not close to the, to the market for the cars uh, on a global basis. And we don't have the technology or processes or all the things. You look at Tesla, which is a leader in that now, they were able to drop prices quite a lot because their margins are so good and, and add a big stimulus, I think, to demand. When we're never going to play in that space. In stationary batteries, I also have my doubts, but there's more of a case for it uh, because we will be a, a reasonable player in stationary batteries over the next few years. At least we're a, we are a, a scale player in the as having a grid and in in the pace of our decarbonisation. Um, even so, I'd not be uh, massively confident that we could do all the bits and, that are required for stationary batteries. You know, we can do assembly of the bits and pieces, but can we add in all the software and control systems? 
uh, uh, look how hard Fluence has had to go through five or six generations as one of the world's two big producers uh, and still, you know, racing in, in essence to do it as well as Tesla is doing it with its with its componentry and packaging. So it's it's not that easy is what I'd say, Charles. Hmm. Talking about big projects, let's get on to Sun Cable. Uh, fascinating fallout between two competing business visions and um, and presumably egos as well between Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon Brooks. Um, this is Sun Cable, which you know wants to build twenty gigawatts of solar, up to forty two gigawatt hours of battery storage, and a four thousand two hundred kilometre sub cable link. Um, uh, Mike Cannon Brooks is very wedded to that vision and even seeking to replicate it with um, other projects if that one's successful. Andrew Forrest is not so sure, wants to focus on his green hydrogen dreams, which basically means sort of um, domestic manufacturing and if exporting anything, exporting molecules rather than electrons. Is this just simply, David, a clash of business um, business cultures, um, business business plans, business visions, or are these projects just really, really hard? Well, you know, you, you want to export two gigawatts of uh, 24-7 energy to Singapore, uh, and the question is, what's the best way of doing it? There's demand from Singapore. Uh, and there's cheap land in the Northern Territory, or I think it's cheap, um, and the, certainly the solar energy there is very good. Um, uh, DC cables are the only way to transport uh, energy um, directly unless you're going to have green hydrogen. Um, it's just a question of whether you can make the economics uh, stack up. I expect that the uh, underwater cable energy business is going to grow very strongly, there are proposals to have an Asian grid you know, of, of, of cables. But uh, in the end, if you can produce the electricity closer to market, that's always going to be your main competitor. Exactly uh, why this would be a good project for, say, green hydrogen. It's still got to get the electricity to the port uh, uh, or the hydrogen to wherever you're going to send it from, that's what I say, and still got to deal with all the inefficiencies and um, costs of manufacturing and shipping green hydrogen. So I'm not sure myself that that's where I'd be putting my, my green hydrogen project either. Uh, uh, I, I like the idea of shipping energy to Singapore. I, I just got to, and I haven't seen the economics or the budget of it, but, 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 but I hope that Mike Cannon Brooks can make something of it. Mm. Well, we shall see. Um, he's obviously, um, he's put up a $65 million interest-free loan for six months to keep the business going and keep all the staff and all that know-how and knowledge. And um, then there'll be a sales process. It'll be interesting to see how that um, runs out when that starts at the end of the month. Look, Looking on other things, David, um, subdued start to electricity prices, much relief to all. Um, you wrote a very interesting piece um for the Renew Economy this week, talking about um, the link between gas prices and electricity prices. If gas, price, gas prices down, electricity prices tend to fall. If they're up, then electricity prices tend to go up. We've seen this very much the case in Europe over the um, over the last 12 months, and uh, particularly over winter when um, the temperatures have been mostly relatively warm, demand has been low, and gas prices have fallen because the storage levels have been maintained. But um, you make the point that we're not really going to see any benefits long term and sort of consistent benefits from low cost wind and solar until we can actually replace gas as the setter of marginal pricing. And that's probably best done in the short term with battery storage and over the long term with pumped hydro. Well, batteries and, and pumped hydro. Um, I think the point was, and by the way, didn't you like the uh, cartoon illustration? Of, of, uh, very. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was one of the better ones, Ed, uh, David. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Not that I did it myself, but compliments to the illustrator. Look, I think the point really uh, is that at the moment, it's when you build more wind and solar, it acts to depress prices uh, in, in initially, but doesn't really uh, do much to the gas uh, side of things because the solar is obviously not operating mostly when, when the gas uh, comes into the system. So what, what the solar does is it tends to push the coal generation out of the system by just reducing the, the coal generation's overall revenue and, and, and therefore making the coal generator ultimately unviable. And then when you take that out of the system, then all of a sudden there's a shortage again and the average price shoots up. Why, why we had such strong prices in the past 12 months was because um, gas demand went up because we actually had a shortage of coal as much as anything else. And of course, the international gas price was very high. So in the short term, the, the, 
the key, much as I hate to say in this, in, into getting the electricity prices back down, it's not so much reducing the gas price, although that certainly helps, but it's also increasing the total amount of bulk energy. And, and in the short term, that's going to come from the coal because we, we still haven't built all the wind and solar projects that we needed. Uh, and, and that's where we sit. And that's why the futures price for electricity across most states other than Victoria and in, out is 2025, 2026 in Queensland. It's mostly sitting around $100 more or less at the moment. Um, which is certainly higher than what Australians have been used to, uh, even if it's lower than what spot prices were last year. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, any other things uh, we should wrap up um, before um, just... Well, I think uh, Neowin got... Neowin, one of my favourite uh, uh, renewable energy companies and the guy that always seems to get its projects done more or less on time, the leader, I suppose, in getting the batteries up and running uh, in Australia... Not that I want to hand out too many compliments, but uh, they didn't waste their Christmas period, did they, Charles? No, they didn't. They uh, announced a um, new wind farm in um, is it New South Wales or was it Queensland? God, I've almost forgotten. I think it was New South Wales. New wind farm in New South Wales, plus the um, start of construction of the Western Downs battery in Queensland, which will be located to what will be, or what is already actually the biggest operating solar farm in Australia. And um, also the, um, I think the financing of the Blythe battery, which will be the battery that um, that um, gets going in, um, which will be providing for BHP. Plus, I think they've also got financial clothes on the first stage of the Goida South Wind Farm, which will be part of what will be the biggest wind, solar and battery hybrid in the country until somebody else comes and beats them to it. So. That's, that's uh, pretty busy, Giles, and you, you've done well to remember all that, I must say. Uh, over the Christmas period, I'm still working off the Christmas spirit, and uh, it's hard to get all the details down, but we better get cracking because it's going to be a big year. Uh, but I think that's about it for us this week. Isn't oh, it? look, it is. Yeah, just one other little thing to mention, and I'd like to know more about it was just basically um, Scott Farquhar, who's the co-founder of Atlassian with Mike Cannon-Brooks, walked away from the deal to purchase GenX which is interesting. They were very keen. Um, they're still a 20% shareholder, but um, obviously it does make you wonder what else we're going to learn about the pumped hydro um, storage to be built at Kidston, which is being built at Kidston. And they had a few geological problems, which they said they got over, but admitted that it would probably mop up a bit more cash. So um, that will gradually unfold over the coming years. Um, and that's interesting because we've seen other pumped hydro projects such as um, Origin Shoalhaven one put in the back burner because of um, inflated costs. We saw all the South Australian projects basically come oh, to nothing. Charles. Yes, David. Yes, that's right. Probably of even more and bigger significance uh, in the overall scheme of things. We saw new chief executive, uh, one I've got a, a lot of time for, I think, at Snowy Hydro. Uh, and we also saw see a new chief executive or confirmation that the interim uh, guy is going to become the chief executive at AGL. And, uh, so, you know, they're two of the biggest players in the energy industry. They've got new CEOs. Uh, Transgrid's got a relatively new CEO as well. Uh, yes, not the... Transgrid, excuse me, Osgrid. Osgrid, Osgrid so yes. So we're going to the... see some... <laughs> it's the first episode back, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so we're going to see a, a lot of impact. And I think, you know, what Dennis Barnes can do at Snowy, how he's going to sort out those cost overruns. And as much as the cost overruns actually improve... Uh, the public relations, because whatever you might think about Paul Broad, he was a terrible, terrible public relations communicator, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And and uh, I, I think that Snowy will manage its interface with the community far, far better, as well as very likely have a more, how can I put it, collegiate uh, uh, approach to, to just getting on oh, with the job. Maybe Renew Economy will no longer be on their banned media list, but um, wouldn't that be something? Yes, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, Damien Nix is taking over as a CEO of um, AGL. It was interesting. He was brought into AGL a decade ago as CFO, just as it turned its uh, business model from green to black with the purchase of all those coal-fired power stations and is now charged with actually reversing and changing the colours back to green. And of course, Mark England, as you mentioned, is CEO of um, Osgrid, started um, last week, and he's the former head of New Energy at AGL, which was a uh, division that was then disbanded as they sort of struggled with their identity and business purpose. David, I think that now is enough for this first episode of 2023. Um, fantastic to have you back. Thanks to all our readers coming back. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen, for continuing your support of this podcast. 
podcast and thanks to all the people who listened in last year. Just about got to a million downloads, um, which is just fantastic. Um, and a total of well over two million now since we started. So um, hope we continue the growth in 2023 as often. And Giles, one other thank you we never mentioned was to our uh, third member of our team, our producer, uh, Anne Delaney, uh, without whom... I don't think too many episodes of Energy Insiders would actually ever hit the air. Yes, no, that is actually, none of them would actually hit the air without Phil uh, Vance. Yes, once again, thank you very much to Anne. Thank you, David. Thanks to everyone. Um, that's it for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.